You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode number 32. Today we're talking about the treatment of fibroids with Chinese medicine. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fiona Gitchum. And today we're talking about the treatment of fibroids with Chinese medicine. We'll discuss diagnostic patterns, acupuncture, Chinese herbs, and we'll also discuss some additional integrative treatment considerations that you can take. The Heavenly Chi Podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi Podcast to your favourite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and if you really enjoy our show, please rate us on iTunes. All right, so thanks for joining us for another episode and today we're talking about fibroids and for me this episode's quite timely. I've had quite a few patients with fibroids coming into the clinic in the last few months and so it's definitely something that's at the front of my mind. From from a Chinese medicine point of view when we're talking about fibroids, you know, we've got a palpable mass and so it, all of the theory around, you know, coming back to palpable masses they're phlegm masses or cheese stagnation masses or blood stagnation masses they're the main the main types of patterns that we're seeing there with all um you know and there's other underlying patterns that come into play whether it's cold or yang deficiency or dampness spleen disharmonies um and so when we're looking at a fibroid, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, it's estrogen dominance and the naturopaths are going to give them, you know, a DIM product or an I3C product, which are, uh, which are you know, products that help to reduce estrogen dominance. From a TCM point of view, we go a lot further and a lot deeper into the disharmony that's underlying why the body is making these lumps in the first place. Yeah. Maybe we can do a summary as well of the um, the Western medical definitions of fibroid. It's it is a benign tumor of muscular and fibrous tissues, um, and they they also can be called myomas. I think usually these days doctors are calling them fibroids, but sometimes they'll call them a uterine myoma. Um, and there are several types, and the name of the fibroid usually defines its location so if you have patients coming in with fibroids usually they'll be telling you they have the fibroid because they've had a western medicine diagnosis of it via a scan of some type so they might say I've got an intramural fibroid uh, which is the most common and that's growing in the wall of the uterus um, there may be a subserosal fibroid which is outside of the uterus and they're actually quite different to treat which will get onto when we talk about treatment and then there's a submucosal fibroid which grows just underneath the uterine lining um, and is more likely to bulge into the uterus cavity and lead to heavy bleeding um, or inter disruptions in bleeding. Yeah and look I mean my, <clears throat> my experience is that any location of the fibroid whether there's one large fibroid or whether there's several smaller fibroids is that the woman's usually experiencing pretty disrupted 
menstrual cycles, whether they're these usually associated with a lot of pain, sometimes with heavy heavy bleeding with clots. But yeah, generally these women are getting investigations done, you know, via their GP or their gynecologist because they're complaining about, you know, excruciating period pain and or heavy bleeding with lots of clots. It tends to happen in mm. women, women who are a bit older or women who have already had children. And then I, I guess that idea of, you know, the, the, the naturopathic idea of estrogen dominance comes into play when there's a lack of progesterone and that tends to happen as women become older and particularly as they um, once they reach their 40s and as they're heading towards menopause progesterone starts to decline anyway Um, and also in women who've had children often their progesterone levels start to drop a little bit sooner if they're a bit run down um, that um, and that sets the scene. And so, from a TCM point of view, we're looking. You know, ultimately, the ma- the majority of the time, you're looking at some form of yang depletion that's underlying. You know, there's not enough. There's not enough chi. There's not enough yang flow within the pelvis and within the lower jaw to keep things flowing properly. And the stagnation over time leads to a physical mass being formed. Yeah, I would definitely say there's also really common in the fibroids I've seen for there to just be cold stuck in the wound yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, so a woman's going to have either heavy bleeding or just a constant period that goes for three weeks or some may have it for longer or perhaps a constant spotting which makes it difficult for them to tell which parts of the cycle they're now at um, and often there can be pain as well in the pelvis or the lower back or just increased menstrual cramping um, sometimes depending on where the fibroid is and if it's large it can be pressing on the bladder mm. um, so there can be more frequent urination or even just because the kidney yang chi is deficient there's more frequent urination um, sometimes there's even pain during intercourse or other types of aches in the lower torso, the lower jaw area. If you've got the like the phlegm stagnation, phlegm and blood stagnation pattern of fibroid, then um, there may also be real changes in vaginal mucus as well. And so there can be. I've seen some cases where there's a confusion there as to whether or not they have some kind of thrush or um, something else going on. Mm. Yeah, and there's also um, just to add that there, you know, the fibroids can press, like particularly when they're the subserosal type, which means that they're pushing into the abdominal cavity, and they can um, have a big impact on intestinal functioning. Mm. So can really disrupt the bowels and also, you know, create some inflammation in the small intestine. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they've got. Um, yeah, just issues related to the general digestion and TNT of all the things that they're eating. It can you can sometimes confuse it with um, yeah symptoms of food intolerances, bloating, and so forth. Right, even uh, types of constipation that occur with the menstrual flow yeah. um, that can be related to fibroids or often also endometriosis, where the endometrial tissue outside of the uterine cavity as well 
Yeah, often when there's when there's fibroids present, the you know there is has been disharmony, significant disharmony within the lower jaw for some time, and a lot of women who have that um, who have that in their history, you know, it's more common for them to have a retroverted uterus rather than antiverted uterus, and so you'll get, you know, it's not necessarily the case that everyone who has bowel symptoms in conjunction with the menstrual cycle has a fibroid, but they usually have something going on that's caused their uterus to become retroverted. So instead of it kind of pointing forward, it's kind of tips back and puts more pressure onto the bowel. And so as the period arrives and the, you know, and the, and the uterus starts to contract to expel the endometrial lining, that contraction then stimulates the bowel. And so the pressure is off the bowel and then the the stool can then move through. And so women can get constipated leading up to their period. And then on the first day of, of flow, they'll be, um, they'll be losing blood, but they'll also be moving their bowels quite a lot. Mm, a great release. Yes. <laughs> Don't even talk about. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so we have basically a, a combination of deficiencies, cold and stagnation. And I find also when we're talking about what's what's causing the fibroid or what are the list of symptoms, that we also really need to address the shen and the heart and the mind as well mm. um, because we need to look at what is stuck. And when something's stuck in someone's sexual region, it's really related as well perhaps to patterns with intimacy or sex sexuality um, and there's there's so many potential patterns going on in there I know Claire and I both seem to have developed some theories based on our experiences with patients over the years um, Claire I've heard you talk about it with the fibroid creating a quarantine zone yeah yeah so I guess that idea that you know for a lot of a lot of these women they've got a lot of anger and resentment and hostility that gets bound up in in the pelvis um, with you know for a range of reasons it can be women who've had um, I'm just thinking of some of the patients that I've had women who've had issues with you know, they've been upset due to infertility. So women who've tried to conceive weren't able to conceive and that, you know, all of those emotions surrounding that kind of congeal and create a, a, like a fibroid or multiple fibroids. Yeah, so that idea that the body's kind of has recognised, okay, well, there's all of this anger here. This is really inflammatory and really quite heating and dangerous and so you know putting a lump around it to try and contain to try and contain it um, is a is a sign that there's you know there's just an overwhelm of emotion that's stuck there that's not able to be processed in a in a manner that um, yeah that the the psyche I guess the soul can't really keep up with the emotion that's there and so putting it aside for later that quarantine zone that's that's one of the ways that I understand fibroids and and every patient that I've spoken to who's got a fibroid and I speak to them about emotions all of them really strongly resonate 
with that idea. One of one of my patients had actually already named her fibroid as her anger baby. And that was a patient. Oh, wow. with, yeah, that was a patient who she had a gigantic fibroid. Her um, she had a 16 centimeter fibroid. And uh, yeah, that was it was huge. Like it was the size of a of a 20 week fetus. Um, and she had, you know, huge symptoms of frequent urination and, um, yeah, just a physical sensation of prolapse because the weight of the fibroid was starting to put pressure on the uterus and coming into um, into the realm of the vagina. And so, yeah, she was very relieved to be able to, um, to get that dealt with. And, you know, I remember at, um, you know, whilst – we were studying that we were taught that anything above five centimetres is difficult, if not impossible, to treat with with Chinese medicine. My experience has been that I've been able to treat fibroids that are larger than that, um, but the 16-centimetre fibroid, that was, that was not the goal of treatment. The, this particular patient had a complicated presentation. She also had... Um, hep C and so her ability to keep her chi flow going with her liver being so compromised you know the goal of the treatment with her was to shrink the fibroid to a point where the surgeon would be happy to remove just the fibroid rather than the full hysterectomy which was what she was initially um, presented with as the only option um, but yeah, she was able to have the just the myomectomy rather than the full hysterectomy, and so yeah, she was thrilled at being able to keep her uterus. Um, I'm currently yeah, that's a great uh... yeah. Oh, she was she was thrilled. I mean, it's a big deal, even though she's already finished having children. You know, she's completed her family, and um, there's no prospect of her having having more children. But even still, you know, removing such a a significant organ you know the the uterus is is the heart in the lower jowl it's um mm-hmm. you know, a very close connection with the heart and so removing a, a woman's uterus is like removing the lower anchor to her heart and it's a big deal so mm. there's also a lot of connections with the, all the neural pathways that go through the gut and the pelvic nerve mm. Um, which connects right into the vagina, which there's only just new research on the role of the pelvic nerve and the mind and the uterus and the vagina. So, Mm. yes, for the preservation of organs, that is a good outcome. I think the largest fibroid that I've treated uh, that I knew the measurement of was 11 centimetres. And that took about a good six months but did break down using the natural... Chinese medicine and some integrative techniques as well. Mm. It also depends, you know, on the location, the type. Yeah. yeah. So once you've got the um, the subserosal fibroids, which are outside the uterus, it is a lot more difficult for us with our medicine to break them down and to gauge whether or not they're breaking down, because with the other types, often they will, the body will be able to bleed them out as that breaks down the material Um, so there's an exit there through the vagina but once they're inside the cavity that's a different story. Mm. Yeah and look my experience has been that um, I think it's just the luck of the draw but the the majority of patients that I've seen with fibroids have had subserosal 
fibroids, so the ones that are the hardest to treat. Um, right. I've currently got a patient who has a 13-centimetre fibroid, um, but what's working in her favour is that she's very close to menopause. So she's 56, so she's pretty much is going to go into menopause any minute. Um, and so that's going to help shrink the fibroid anyway. So as um, as women reach menopause and the estrogen levels naturally drop, that then helps to curb any further growth of the fibroid and can also help to shrink it. And so um, what we've found is that since since she started treatment about three months ago, she did go away on holidays for six weeks, but we did start the treatment before she went away, is that she hasn't had a period since we started treatment. So that's a really good sign. And so, yeah, she's about to go back for a follow-up scan three months in um, just to see where we're at with the fibroid. So that's something that, um, yeah, if you're interested in in um, following up on that case, you're welcome to message me on Facebook and I'll keep you posted. But, um, yeah, it, I mean, it's fascinating. I, you know, I, I said to her, I have not treated a fibroid this large before. They say, you know, quote, unquote, they say that... Um, you can't treat fibroids this big with natural medicine. Um, but, you know, she's willing to give it a go because, um, you know, the alternative that they're giving her at the moment is a, is a hysterectomy or nothing. Um, mm. And so at least if we can shrink it down, um, it's, it's probably going to shrink anyway. Can we shrink it further so that she then qualifies for a myomectomy or, you know, I mean, ultimately it wasn't causing her any problems anyway. You know, it was just found during a routine, um, you know, she went to her doctor for a pap smear and that's when they found the fibroid. And so, um, you know, she wasn't bothered by it at all. It was just kind of sticking out a bit, but she's got some extra weight anyway. Um, and, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I think the, the good thing about treating fibroids is that in a lot of cases you do have a fair amount of time yeah. to try and treat it naturally and to figure out if the patient can give the natural medicine a chance as well to figure out a way to break down what, what has been stored or, as you say, what's been put into the quarantine zone and talking as well, just talking with the patient and the counselling side of things I find is really important. There's so often such a big link between a particular discussion session and then the next period or the next bleed where a whole bunch of stagnant mass has broken down or, or dissolved down and is coming out with the, the period or maybe not even in these cases with the period but as a, a, a bleed or a spotting. Mm. Yeah, I have a kind of a similar... Um, way of describing the quarantine zone to you but my observation is a little different it's I call it the false universe so when you have a benign type of mass um, it's like its own little world like you say the quarantine zone it's its own little location with a like a an edge to it and I've often noticed that in these cases where there is the estrogen dominance and the fibroid forms that there's a, an emotional pattern with the woman whereby there's something to do with the way she's relating to her sex life or love life or her like her intimate heart life where she's not really seeing things she's not good at seeing things as they really are and she's living a little bit more so in a fantasy 
representation of what's going on in those intimate relationships and so it's like she's creating a false universe and that starts to form and grow and have a physical representation there in the womb. Even though it's um, not a good place for a woman to be in because it leads to a lot of heartbreak, it's a great liberation to wake up to and to realise. So the conversation around that and the uncovering of that is a, a process that I find always really is, is amazingly timed with oh my period suddenly changed or I just bled for three weeks and I feel really different and it was like a kind of an exorcism of all of these relations in the past you know that that didn't work out because the woman wasn't fully uh, operating within the reality of what was going on mm. so whether or not that's just um, having a a delusional fantasy about what's really going on in a relationship uh, and then being disappointed because it's not doesn't match the fantasy mm. um, or whether or not that's also related to her fertility um, in, in that way I wouldn't necessarily call it delusional but just that there is a real clinging to a particular fantasy of what her how her fertility life is going to progress mm. yeah which is a really, you know, really difficult area. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ultimately it's so it's so important to assist your patient in unravelling, you know, that, that energetic pattern and that, you know, that mental pattern, that spiritual pattern that's led to the stagnation because it happens over a long period of time that the, you know, everything kind of gets jammed up and just stops flowing and, you know, allowing, you know, talking about feelings is really important. You know, that's why they're called feelings. We're meant to feel them. Um, and there's a whole range of emotions that, you know, or even just one specific emotion that almost is like a no-go zone for these women. And so encouraging them to be able to experience a full flowing spectrum of emotions and to feel safe in that, you know, a lot of these women are quite, um, you know, have a tendency for self-sacrifice or, you know, for, um, you know, deprioritizing their own needs. Um, and I find I having, I have a lot of discussions around those types of, those types of ideas just to, you know, to work out where is their self-worth and how does their own relationship with themselves play into it. Um, it seems to be the key for a lot of the women that I've treated at least. Um, in being able to get that, to get the chi dynamic right on the shen level, which then flows on through to the the chi level and then on to the blood and the physical level. Yeah, well, I mean, in a lot of traditional cultures, the period is understood as a cleansing of the uterus and the vagina to happen every month, and so you know it's really not an organ that we're supposed to hang on to things in. So every time we bleed, you know, we're meant to feel all those feelings and the feelings are heightened at the time, the emotions are heightened at the time, um, the intuition can be heightened at the time, you know, there can be a lot of patterns with women as well with, for example, premenstrual stress where in some cases the emotions are heightened and they're not really attached to her reality and that's one type of imbalance. But then there's another where the feelings and the the true signals and the true communications between the the womb and the heart are heightened during that time and that's when the woman says hey you know what I've been saying this thing is okay for three weeks but actually it's just not okay with me 
and that's when the boundaries come out, you know, and, and um, so other than when we are cultivating and growing a baby in the womb, we're really meant to let everything go from that womb in a monthly cycle. So if, if things are held on to or those um, quarantine of those feelings that haven't been felt or dealt with or fantasies that haven't been let go of, you know, if they're still being held on to in there, that's what starts to form that mass. Mm. And so um, let's shift gears and go into the um, go a bit more into detail about the integrative understanding of fibroids with estrogen dominance and low progesterone. You know, and I mentioned mm. before um, about the you know heading into menopause with estrogen levels dropping and progesterone levels dropping as well, but the progesterone dropping more than the estrogen, which creates the relative um, estrogen dominance. From a from an integrative medicine point of view, you know, they're talking a lot about, you know, there's the three different types of estrogen. There's the, the E1, the E2 and the E3. So there's the, the estrone, which is the E1, which is the aggressive type of estrogen. And this is the estrogen that's more commonly associated with fibroids. E2 is estradiol, mm -hmm. which is the potent feminine form of estrogen, and then estriol, which is E3, which is the protective form of estrogen. And so often the metabolism of estrogen, which you know occurs in the liver via the aromatase pathways, um, often there's a problem with the way that um, the estrogens are being metabolized and so there's, there's too much of the E1s being created not enough of the E3 and then the pathways by which the E1 is then metabolized into the 2-hydroxy and the 4 and the 16 forms of estrogen is mucked up as well and it's very it, it can get quite complicated when you're talking about it from that molecular level um, and ultimately from a Chinese medicine point of view we just call it stagnation which I just think <laughs> is a much more elegant way of describing it. And so I always go for the more elegant description. Um, mm. and, and so we're treating stagnation essentially with or without, you know, cold or damp or, you know, whether it's blood stagnation or cheese stagnation or whatever we want to be calling it, it's like it's stuck and we need to fix it. Mm. And there is a correlation we can make with the oestrogen being like a yin or yin pooling and the, the progesterone being like the yang qi. So when there's that yang qi deficiency, you have that relative deficiency of progesterone in comparison to, to the oestrogen. So they yeah. need to be in a particular ratio with each other. And I've had cases where women have had their oestrogen is, is within, it's at the higher end of the spectrum, but it's still within the normal range. However, the progesterone is quite low and, and that's enough to have oestrogen dominance. Your oestrogen doesn't have to be off the charts. Yeah. Um, it can just be that it's so much higher than the progesterone that it's out of ratio. Yeah. And so then treatment... Um, to raise the progesterone really is how we get it back into balance. But there's another integrative perspective I can offer from the world of methylation and that is that um, your oestrogen, you know, you have the different types as Claire mentioned and you have your helpful, protective and feminine function oestrogens and then you also have oestrogen types that oxidize and become also cancer-causing oestrogens that lead to breast cancer or ovarian cancer. So where there is a tumour that is basically has a 
a connection to estrogen excess in that form and um, so we want to also address methods in the diet or in the treatment that are ensuring that a woman's estrogen is not leading into that dominant pattern because whilst fibroids may not be tremendously serious in many cases it can be a sign of things to come that a woman is at risk for his estrogen related cancers as well yeah i think that's a really important point you know because a lot of women um you know particularly if you're treating older women in their history you know quite a lot of women have had fibroids removed or they've had the uterus removed due to fibroids and it's not a done you know it's not necessarily just a done deal that you cut out the uterus and problem solved you know in a lot of ways um by removing the uterus and not addressing the underlying disharmony it's you know it's a lot like just disconnecting the smoke alarm you know your house is still on fire you're still at risk of other pelvic cancers and um and other hormonal related cancers so you know, bowel cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, these are still a risk for women who've had their fibroids removed um, and, you know, particularly if the underlying disharmony isn't addressed, you know, mm. which is often about a problem with their estrogen metabolism or, you know, a problem with their adrenals not being able to produce enough progesterone. As, you know, as women head into menopause, the ovaries close off and the adrenals are the only the only shop that remains open in terms of um, creating hormones and so um, yeah it's important to for a woman who's had a previous previous you know history of fibroids is to really look at supporting their yang energy and to keep their chi flowing smoothly yeah so let's talk about some treatment yeah I would always start this whole shebang with cupping the cold out of the navel. Yep, without a doubt. First first call <laughs> every time. And we're going to put a link to a video by Heather Bruce for how to cup out the cold. Uh, if you don't know this method from the navel, it's, it's a nice old school method, a nice barefoot doctor method using um, lighting a fire on the belly and using a big cup and taking a long time. Yes, and you must use the coin. Um, so, okay. <laughs> so you put the coin in a tissue, so you get a big silver coin. So in Australia we're using a 50-cent piece. Um, in other countries just use the, the largest diameter silver coin that you can find. Um, wrap that up in a, in a tissue so that you've kind of got a little chimney and you light, light the tissue and then put the cup on it so that you're creating a nice um, strong suction around the mm. around the navel. I have had a, a patient I was cupping out the belly cold from from Turkey and uh, this patient informed me that she discussed this with her mother and aunt and they started sending instructions through her to me to make sure I was doing the cupping out of the belly cold properly. So this technique has even extended as far as Turkey. Mm. And they also, they really use the salt. The salt the with the cup. Now they put the salt inside the tissue where we would put the coin. Ah, okay. So That's the easy. first I'd heard of that one, but I just remember the patient saying, and can you do the salt? Can you do the salt? Because ah, so, yeah, I do the salt yeah. after, but that's that's actually a, an interesting idea. 
Um, so often, right. So we've used the salt as a basis for the moxa. Yeah. But the salt went into the tissue, and uh, it had something to do with the salt being warming and like a, a conveyor. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I like I like that idea. Yeah, the medium of the salt would catch out the cold or send in the heat. Yeah, well, well the idea yeah. with the coin is that you're protecting the, like you're helping to, you know, take out the cold but but keep the yuan chi in. Um, but mm. I can imagine that salt would have a similar energetic effect. So with the cup, mm. you're putting it on. I mean, it's all the information's in Heather's video, but you put the cup on until... Well, leave it on until either you don't have any more time or, um, you know, if they've got cold hands and feet or a cold bum or a cold belly that you're leaving the cup on until they've warmed up and then mm. afterwards you follow with moxa. So you're putting some salt. I, I put the salt in the tissue and then put the moxa on top of the salt um, and then you, you're using moxa so that you're, you've pulled out the cold but then you're putting in some yang so that, you know, when the yang is replete there's no room for cold to enter so the moxa is important at the end yeah and so you need to talk about as well you know how is the cold getting in there so you have to check the diet and the lifestyle and the way they dress and the weather and yeah what they're drinking and yeah i find that people who tend to ingest cold things so whether they're drinking cold water from the fridge or they're eating cold food I find that that makes the portion between the ribs and the navel cold, whereas if it's cold below the, the navel, then that to me is um, is more of that kind of classic yang deficiency cold. I find that the cold above the belly button generally resolves when they stop eating the cold things. And just in, in terms of um, how much time it can take, for that shift to occur I mean we've Claire and I have both had cups on people for this process for you know an hour and a half so you can't you can't hurry this technique mm. and look sometimes mm. you just don't have the time to finish it up yeah. but if you do have the time and the patient has the time um, you know just mm. pop your head in every 15 or 20 minutes and recheck the belly or whichever part is cold a lot of these women do have quite cold bottoms um, mm. And so, yeah, stick you your hand down the their tuck. pants and have a feel of their bum. <laughs> if, if you've checked with them first, sometimes you, they get a surprised face if they if you haven't given them the heads up. But that's a it's a very um, sneaky place that women hide their cold. I have to admit, I haven't snuck my hands down any patient's pants like that. But yeah, the <laughs> the cold just just around gallbladder thirty. Yeah, that hangs out there. So acupuncture as well. Um, I really like using some eight extras here. Mm, yeah, the Chiang Mai would be my favourite. I know you've got one too. Yeah, I use a lot of Dai Mai, but I do use Chiang Mai for fibroids, and in particular, um, and again, you know, a lot of my education around women's health and and eight extras has come from Heather Bruce. And she's got a really great um, Eight Extras and Women's Health um, audio course that she's got. And so um, the way that she taught was to kind of use the Eight Extras as as a channel. So if you're doing Chong Mai, you're doing Spleen 4, Pericardium 6, and then you're also doing, you know, Stomach 30 and other points that are actually on the Chong Mai and you're kind of making it really obvious to the body, hey, we're doing Chong Mai here. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm often using stomach 30 for this type of thing. 
um, mm -hmm. which is on the Chong Mai, um, or or Dai Mai. It depends if it's more of a blood stagnation pattern, I'll do Chong Mai. If it's more of a qi stagnation pattern, I'll do a Dai Mai. Yeah, and finding the relevant stomach channel points as well mm. along there from 25 through to 30. Um, if you know the location of the fibroid, that can be really helpful. I always like to use kidney 16 as yeah. a Shokan 10 point for Shaoyin. So you've got there that axis between heart and kidney that's really the emotional axis of, of the pattern that's formed. And the Shokan 10 point at kidney 16 really has a function of balancing between the yin and the yang, the hot and the cold, the heart and the kidney, and the love and the fear. Mm. I love kidney 16. You introduced me to that point. Did I? Yeah, you did. Do you have kidney 16 over for dinner at your um, acupuncture points as friends dinner party? Yeah, I've got um, I've got kidney 16 <laughs> on my speed dial. <laughs> kidney 16 shows up a lot in my treatments nowadays. Um, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, there's another episode called Acupuncture Points as Friends. So go have a listen. We talk about, you know, how we have unique relationships with certain points. <laughs> That's Heavenly Chi, episode 29. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so in terms of um, herbs, what sort of... Oh, can I mention some more acupuncture first? Oh, yeah, of course. So spleen 8. Yes. Is the special point for the uterus and... Um, it's all, also, know, is it know, also the she cleft point of the spleen channel? which means that it's a really good point for clearing stagnation. Of course, you've got spleen 10 and then you've got stomach 40 if you've got more of a phlegm mass. Um, so there's a lot of, I usually do a lot of leg work. So I start at the belly and work on the legs down to the feet um, when it comes to fibroids. I'd say also sometimes some upper kidney channel points for the emotional issues. Kidney 27 and REN17 factor in a lot for um, for these women. And I'm also doing a lot of massage underneath the ribs, so along, mm. along the ribs and then from the pubic bone along the inner rim of the pelvis. Um, I find mm -hmm. that that provides a lot of relief and opens up the circulation. But what's even better than that is actually um, a mine abdominal massage. So if you've got someone local to you, and um, I'm very fortunate. I've got a practitioner in my clinic who has trained in um, in mind abdominal massage. But um, yeah, definitely seek seek out someone local to you who's done the training and um, go and have a massage for yourself. And you can really feel it opens up the whole flow in the pelvis. You know, you have a, a nice warm, tingly feeling for a few hours afterwards. It's um, mm. that's something that. Yeah, I don't do as much massage anymore. I just refer out for um, for that massage so they can learn the self-care technique as well. Mm, yes, that is great. I've also experienced that. I also have found REN22 a couple of times to be relevant, more so in the, uh, the Liberty phlegm mass type of pattern so of course you've got the your plum pitchy connection but even in the chakra system the womb is the sacral chakra and the chakras are all in pairs so the crown and the base are a pair the sacral and the throat are a pair no 
sorry I got that wrong, the solar plexus and the throat are a pair, but there is a big um, connection with the voice and the womb and the female sexual energy, which is why, you know, there's such a huge history of through sexual abuse and raping of women that this is how the female voice was subdued. So I've had certain cases where I've needled Chiang Mai and I've been working on fibroid and the patient just really starts clearing their throat a lot. Mm, yep. Or uh, one even would vocalize to me quite often. There's, I just feel like there's something like stuck at my throat and so I started to include REN22 in the process and that would also be really helpful especially if uh, for the woman to address her emotional life she needed to communicate with certain people in a new way or to express new boundaries or new needs. And are you, um, do you needle that downwards, you know, that you kind of go behind the, the sternum yeah. and down? You do. So, I make sure they're on quite a flat pillow or no pillow. Yeah. And I, sorry if my voice dropped out, I actually started going through the movements myself. <laughs> I, I tilt the chin up, uh, yeah, so that so the chin is, is lifted up high and as if they're looking at the ceiling, although they'd be lying down, so they'll be looking at the wall behind them. And then just pop the needle in facing down towards the feet. And you don't need to go very deep. Um, but you just slide in behind the top of the sternum there. And is that is is Ren twenty two? Is that on the? Is that a Yin Cha Mai point? I wonder if it might be. I'm not sure. You're testing me now. I, always, I will look that up if you want to start talking about herbs. People, well, anyone who knows me knows that I always get my Yin Cha and my Yin ways mixed up, and the Yang Cha and the Yang way. But I think it might be mm-hmm. one of those channel points. I have the Deadman app here. I'll look it up. Um, okay, so is, is that? Do I have anything else to say about acupuncture? I think I'm. I often use liver two. Liver two goes in for all of these women. Um, that's a point for. That's where pissed off lives. Part of my language, but <laughs> if you're really angry about something, then liver two is a great point. I don't use liver three very often. I find it too strong. Um, you know, a lot of these women, particularly if they've had the heavy bleeding. You know, a consideration to take into account is that it can create a lot of blood deficiency and anemia, and I find that liver three is too strong to to shift that. Whereas liver two just helps to take a lot of that heat and anger away from the liver channel, just to give a bit of space. But yeah, in terms of herbs, I use. Let me just answer your um. Oh, good. Your Ren twenty two is the Yin Wei Mo. It's the meeting point of the Ren Mai and the Yin Wei Mai. There you go. And it's also a point of the window of heaven being on the neck there. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a good one to – yeah, and I use a lot of um, kidney nine, which is also on that same um, mm. Yin Wei – well, Yin, Yin Wei Mai pairs up with, with Chong Mai, so that makes kidney sense. Kidney nine is the sea cleft of the Yin Wei, isn't it? It is. I like my she cleft points. I use a lot of she cleft points for women with fibroids. So, yeah, spleen eight's a she cleft point, kidney nine. Um, kidney eight's the she cleft point of yin chow mai if you need to be doing something with yin chow mai, but I'm finding that I use a lot more of the, um, yeah, I use kidney nine a lot more. Okay, sorry to interrupt. That's Go okay. Back to herbs. Yes, back to herbs. Third time's a charm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I use a lot of um, 
I've used, look, I've used a few different formulas. I used, I had a patient who was pregnant and had a fibroid and I gave her Dungo Shea Sun and that cleared up the fibroids. So that was a great result. Um, and I wasn't doing anything else with her because she was pregnant. I was reluctant to do anything that could compromise the pregnancy. And so, and she fit the picture of Dungo Shea Sun and it's, you know, it's a very famous formula to use for problems in pregnancy. And was that the Empirical Health Dungoshaya San yes. with the Cheshire? Yep, Simon Feeney's Empirical Health Dungoshaya San. <laughs> we talked to him about that formula in one of the earlier episodes. We've done two episodes with him, but um, yeah, have a listen. He talks a lot about that formula and he uses chishao mm. yao not like the but it's not the chishao that everyone uses it's like the proper chishao because there's an adulterated form of chishao that's become more mainstream right and most dangwe san is not going to contain that correct yeah so that may also i'm i believe that that proper chishao yao that was in the dangwe san was um, pivotal in the success of that herbal formula for the fibroid in pregnancy. Yeah, because I don't think it was ever meant to be Baishao because, you know, that's what we tend to use today. But back when Zhang Zhongjing was writing up his formulas, you know, he wrote it up as Xiaoyao and the Xiaoyao that they had at that time was was actually Chishao, not Baishao or more similar to mm. Cheshire than to Baishao. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wen Jing Tang is one of great my, one. yeah, one of my uh, most commonly used formulas for the cold blood stagnation mass type of fibroid. And I find that when you use the Wen Jing Tang, um, there is an emotional transition or release and there is often um, a heavier period or a breakthrough bleed um, if you have the type of fibroid that's that can release through the vagina. Yeah, and I find, um, I mean, similar to Wenjing Tang, I use um, Xiaofu Ju Tang sometimes as well, um, mm. which again is getting, you know, targeting the stagnation and cold that's in the in the pelvis. Um, and I'm also using, um, like, Gweja Fuling Wan is another one that you can use um, and that we talk a lot about Simon's formulas. <laughs> um, <laughs> Simon does that up as an actual one, so the classical way to take the Guajifuling one, which is powdered into um, powdered and mixed with honey to take as a one rather than a decoction. Um, and so I find that that's if, if I'm going to be using Guajifuling one, I'm using it as the honey pill rather than as a decoction or a granule. Yeah. And I would differentiate that by um, determining the presence of phlegm. Yeah. Yep. So for me, that would be: am I if there's phlegm, I'm using Guizhou Fuling One. If it's mostly cold blood stagnation, I'm using Wenjing Tang. Um, if there's a lot of qi stagnation, I'm using Dangguo San. And then we have another formula to mention, which always makes me laugh: Di Dong One. Yeah, well, that's um, a, isn't it called dead on pill or something like that? The way it's translated, I think so. So mm. this this it's, one is a bit of an unpleasant experience for the patient, but it can be very effective. Yeah, it's it's made with leeches and you know really strong blood busting herbs, um, and yeah, that it can make them feel a bit nauseous. It can give them 
really loose bowels, they may vomit. Um, but it's, I mean, the classical way of taking it is this giant pill and you kind of boil it up for a bit and it's a bit like tar from all reports. Um, it's not suitable for my constitution, so I've never had it. But, um, yeah, from what my patients have said, it's just this really full-on experience and you only really take two doses um, and it just expels out the stasis. Um, the patients, I haven't used it for a fibroid. I've used it for a patient with endometriosis and it, I didn't see her for three months and then she came back and said, well, I'm fixed, like that disgusting <laughs> formula that you gave me fixed me. Um, and so that was really great feedback to get. Mm, yeah, I've used it for a fibroid and it led to a black tar type of bleed, a period. Yeah. Um, and we did it right before, during the week before the period being due as well. Um, and the patient also had a bit of loose bowel movement that but said she felt like nearly everything came out, but that was good because there was a lot of food stagnation mm. as well. And then um, there was a reduction in the size of the fibroid. That's a good outcome. So you probably don't want to give it to a new patient who uh, is going to run a mile if they have some unpleasant herbs. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, it's if a you good... really need to do an herbal exorcism, there's one to consider. Oh, totally. Yeah. So we've got Wenjin tongue, more for cold in the uterus. We've got Shaf well, and stasis, Shafuji tongue, which, well, I feel like that's not as warming. So if you've got someone that doesn't have outstanding amounts of cold, that's when I'm using yeah. Shafuji tongue. Guaja filling one for damp or phlegm. Dungwa Shayasan for more of a cheese stagnation and then the d done one if there's <laughs> if you've got someone who's hardcore <laughs> you want to evict the uh, quarantine zone false universe yeah and you can mm, also then... you can also do um make like a herbal poultice so you can use some really quite strong um herbs topically so if you're not into um integrative medicine approaches which we'll go into shortly then um, it's important I think to use topical in conjunction with internal herbs and you can do them um, you can do them as a I think it's a bit tricky for patients to do a douche it just becomes a bit messy and inconvenient and that compliance can be tricky but if you can make up a a heat pack or you know some type of poultice that the patient can put onto their abdomen and apply it with heat so put a hot water bottle with it um, then you can get some really strong um, stagnation clearing medicinals that you know you're not relying on the gut on the digestive system to be able to manage it so yeah, yeah for, for the purists out there we understand <laughs> and, and uh, yeah we encourage you to um, to go topical and internal and there is also the vaginal steaming yes using herbs which is part of the mayan massage methods and then on the on the integrative medicine side of things we've got the iodine yeah which you can get as the liquid the lugol's formula and to paint that on over, over the belly on the region over the fibroid yeah and iodine is really good at moving stagnation yeah it's very um, um yeah, very strong at clearing damp. It's a little bit heating as well. 
Um, and so, yeah, just be careful if you've got patients who are yin deficient or a bit sensitive or if, they, you know, they swim a lot in a chlorinated pool or if you live in an area where there's a lot of fluoride in the water, um, those patients can have quite strong detox reactions where the body detoxifies the halides out of the skin. So rotating the area of skin where you're putting the iodine on, put it, you know, on one side of the belly, then the other, maybe on the legs, maybe on the bum. That's mm. a good way to do iodine so you don't get a burn. You end up with a chemical burn on the skin for those patients. If they do have that strong detox reaction, you want to avoid that. And you'll need to give them selenium as well. Yeah, yep. Um, but, yeah, iodine's to... great at damp. It clears damp really great. And it's also really good for cellulite. So if if women are not being compliant because they're like, oh, you know, I can't be bothered with the iodine, it's really great for clearing cellulite and that often is motivation enough for a woman to do <laughs> the iodine every day. And there's the castor oil pack where yeah. you get some organic castor oil, uh, put it onto a a towel and warm it or uh, kind of wrap the towel onto the belly with some glad wrap and then put a heat pack on top of it so that it gets infused into the body through warmth. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's really good for great. breaking down all kinds of masses as well. I've also used the iodine and the castor oil a lot for anyone with abdominal tumours that are cancerous or, you know, other than fibroids. Yep, yep. Um, and progesterone, so you can get progesterone cream. If you're in the States, you've got ready access to over-the-counter progesterone cream, and that's um, really effective at helping to balance out. I mean, it's not really a root treatment, but it helps to balance out the, um, the estrogen and progesterone levels and can stop the growth of the fibroid and sometimes help to shrink it. So you're using that in yeah. conjunction with your herbs. You can't just do that on its own. Yeah, and the, the progesterone cream is also really adaptable as to where you put it. So if someone does have the negative oxidized types of estrogen, there can be a pattern with those estrogens that bind with heavy metal toxicity like mercury and actually hangs out in the womb. Mm. Um, so that's a big issue as well with fibroids or with endometriosis. So you can put the progesterone cream on the belly, but you can also put it on the breasts. Women with a lot of estrogen and sort of cystic breast patterns or a history of breast cancer is a really good place for them to put it on the breasts um, and again I have noticed uh, you can also use the progesterone cream on um, the kind of fatty areas that women with estrogen dominance get like around the hips and the belly or the thighs where the cellulite forms and that can be a good partner in our weight loss mm. efforts as well yeah yeah um, and you can use yeah, you can use um, small amounts of progesterone during the month, but you can also prevent ovulation if you use too much between the bleeding and the ovulation. So I wouldn't use any more than the 20 milligrams dose prior to ovulation, but once you're reaching the ovulation day and through to the rest of the month, you can really use four or five times that amount um, with a lot of women. Yeah, yeah. And it can help with other negative effects of estrogen dominance like PMS or skin issues. Yeah. And I would add to that that, um, you know, with progesterone, it's, you know, it's a yang substance. It does have a little bit of support for blood, but um, it is it is quite yang. And so if you've got, if you're dealing with a woman who's got 
significant yin deficiency or like an empty heat as part of her pattern, then um, using high doses of progesterone can cause agitation where, you know, the body's not necessarily, you know, you can put progesterone in, but what the body does with that progesterone is up to the body and uh, you can upregulate cortisol production and, you know, cause all types of imbalances and, the you know, can just cause agitation and a lot of heat. So just be mindful that, um, you know, the the rules of yin and yang still apply even when you're using functional medicine approaches right of course and with our herbs that we've mentioned you know we haven't really mentioned any really strong yin tonics here but it may be a case where you've got someone with who is yin deficient with basically an ice cube of cold lodged in their uterus so you need to uh, find some strategies there you might be using something like Luwe Di Huang Wan as well as your other um, formulas mass yeah and even um you know herbs that we which i didn't mention before but you know often i'm adding in herbs like sunling and urju as a pair um, which are really quite you know they're a good duo for helping to break up stagnation so um even once you're past you know i guess it depends at what stage of treatment you're at but often those herbs are going to hang around for quite a while in the in the herbal treatment protocols that I'm using for my patients yeah but yeah I mean you have to treat your patients as they're presenting if they're a classic you know urshian tongue person then give them urshian tongue and modify that rather than going with um, you know a formula according to the textbook I find the best outcomes for patients come when you when you get really clear on your diagnosis and you know there are certain herbal formulas that just work amazingly and it doesn't matter necessarily what the person has. If you're treating their pattern, then they're going to get better. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, and there's also a link I mes- mentioned earth- earlier with methylation and the body's estrogen metabolism. So if you have a patient who's come in with an MTHFR gene mutation diagnosis or they've brought that to you and they have fibroids or any other estrogen dominant patterns, then um, their body's not going to have as much capacity for metabolizing estrogen and they're they're going to end up with more oxidized estrogen. uh, So that can require some additional support in the biochemistry there for methylating the folate and the B12 to make sure that the estrogen metabolism is happening properly. Yeah, and to make sure that they're not having synthetic B vitamins either in, you know, a supplement that they're taking or even, you know, fortified foods often have um, added synthetic B vitamins and so... No folic acid. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But yes, if it's not your thing, refer out for that, but it can really make a big difference. There's so many women that I've treated combining Chinese medicine and um, nutrigenomics and methylation work. And, um, you know, once we, we even just do one month of methylation support and they often report to me they've had the best period they've ever had in their life and, you know, it's um, such a good companion. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if you've got any other tidbits or tips that you use with fibroids or insights into the yin and yang of fibroids, please share them with us on our Facebook page below this episode. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. We'd love to get some ratings going on iTunes from all of our wonderful listeners. Yeah. And, yeah, share share your experiences as well, you know, with treating fibroids. Maybe you haven't had as much success or, you know, maybe you've got some great success stories to share or maybe you just want some helpful advice from fellow practitioners. Uh, You're welcome to do that on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week. Yeah. Bye for now. See you next week. Bye for now.